Hey, it's your host, Charlotte Chipperfield, and welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast, the show that inspires you to think holistically about yourself, your business, and your marketing to ignite the impact you desire to have on the world. We'll learn what it takes to be seen and heard in the digital space from leading experts and myself as a marketing executive and the former founder of Chipperfield Media. Get ready to own your marketing by exploring the intersection of purpose and proactive marketing to move your business forward. Welcome to the Holistic Marketing Podcast. Today, Josh Carter joins us. Josh is a U.S. Navy vet, a serial entrepreneur, a speaker, a podcast host, and a mentor for early stage startups. Having started a number of companies, he's held or he's led teams working on projects for companies like Disney, Pabst Blue Ribbon, Taco Bell, and many more. He led Brightwork, a developer infrastructure company, into top tier accelerator program Techstars and helped secure venture funding. Josh has also led Techstars affiliated nonprofit called the Patriot Bootcamp, where he was instrumental in creating new programs and partnerships. Currently, Josh is the program director for the Washington Maritime Blue Innovation Accelerator, the principal of 1859 Ventures, and the host of the Veteran Founders Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss the world of investment and how founders can build an investor-attractive business by being really clear on what it means to take on investment and also to just determine when might be the right time for your company to think about that capital infusion. So welcome, Josh. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have this conversation with you. But I'd love for you to maybe start and just tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and your background and what you do. Sure, you covered quite a lot there. Um, You know, my background, like you mentioned, I'm a Navy vet. uh, And then when I got out of the Navy, I spent a lot of time in telecommunications, doing different things, all the way from climbing up telephone poles and crawling under houses to run residential phone line all the way, everything in between and and into cloud communications. My last telecom job was uh, for a small startup at the time. Nobody had ever heard of called Twilio. I think we're like 50 people at the time. And then I stayed until the IPO. And then I began a company called Plunk here in Portland, Oregon. And we did stuff for Disney and the Super Bowl in New York. We were basically just building applications for companies, but it was a services business. And at some point we knew if we wanted to sustain our business, we needed to create a product. And so we spun out this platform called Brightwork, which was essentially everything built on the back end for developers so that all they had to really focus on was the front end. And, uh, and as you mentioned, we, we raised some money, took it through Techstars. We really couldn't find any funding for it. And there was a lot of learning there. We, we wound that down in 2017. And then I joined Techstars running their nonprofit called Patriot Bootcamp, which is a, an accelerator for military veterans and, and spouse uh, founders. I did that for about a year and a half and then joined WeWork and ran WeWork Labs here in Portland, Oregon for about a year until WeWork decided to self-implode. Now I'm at uh, Maritime Blue. But I, you know, the, the fund, 1859, was really just uh, my answer for all of the funding challenges within our state. And so, and we talk a little bit about that, but, um, but it was, it's really a fun focus on four key demographics and that's, uh, first time founders, female founders, people of color and military veterans and, and spouse founders. Yeah, it's phenomenal. We'll probably dive into that a little bit more too, as we talk about 
some of the challenges around fundraising. But I'd love maybe us just to start at the very beginning for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with what it means to think about taking on investment and the options there, especially if they're bootstrapping right now. So maybe you can give everyone just like super high level, like what tends to be involved from like the pitch to, you know, finding investors, like what does that whole kind of end to end cycle look like? Yeah, typically what you'll do as a founder is you'll do some due diligence, you'll figure out what investor really fits your business and which investors can add some value to your business, not just write a check. So once you've done that, you've done some homework, then perhaps you've gotten a warm introduction. A lot of VCs these days, because of deal flow, will take cold introductions as well. But but the best is you get a warm introduction. And then from there, you get a first meeting. And then it's all sort of feeling everybody out. Just, are you the right partner for me to grow my business? And then if the answer is yes, then you move into what they call due diligence. And for earlier rounds, it's not really that important because you don't have a whole lot of historical data to go through. For later rounds, due diligence is certainly very important. But really, in those early stages, the investors just really getting to know you as a founder and your team. Are you the right team? And so once that process uh, has completed and everybody's very comfortable with each other, then there's some sort of terms that that are presented from the VC. And these can be in the form of a safe note, which is basically an agreement for future equity or um, or some sort of convertible note, which is debt that converts into shares of stock. Of stock. So, and then that whole process, it varies. Uh, some VCs, it can take a month. Some, it can take three or four months. It really depends on how much bandwidth they have to, to do deal flow and how efficient their operations are. Now I'm seeing, especially in the early stage, from first meeting to funding, it's taking less and less time because it's just VCs have had a tremendous amount of historical, you know, operational experience where they can just be very efficient about saying yes and going quickly and iterating very fast. So the process doesn't take too terribly long at the early stages. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you can hear it can take all sorts of different mm-hmm. time frames, but I love to hear that that's shrinking a little bit because I think it can be, it's obviously a very stressful process yeah. if you don't know where that next infusion of capital is coming from. But even if you're not necessarily working with a VC, do you want to speak to maybe other funding levels before that venture capital level? Yeah. Well, you know, and in in my programs, I spend a lot of time teaching founders about non-dilutive options. Right now, there's a lot of, you know, especially with the America, uh, America First Act that that gave a lot of agencies an influx of cash. And then if this new um, uh, legislation goes through, then there'll be even more. So you've got agencies within the federal government that are teams of six that have like $12 billion to deploy. So a lot of government agencies, whether it's NSF or the Economic Development Agency, or even within the Department of Defense space, uh, like AFWorks is a great example. That's their venture wing of the Air Force. Uh, They're all flush with cash. And so there's these SBIR programs that are just non-dilutive grant programs, and they go by phases. So phase one is typically, hey, I've got this great idea. I'd really love your help to figure out if there's something there there. And so you'll get an SBIR grant for maybe $50,000, and then that you can use that money however you need to use that money. But your objective is to go on to the next phase. And so if you, for example, if I'm going to pick on AFWorks for a moment, 
if you go on to the next phase, it's because you found an Air Force customer. And then that next phase funding could be as much as a million and a half dollars. And then there's agencies that match. So you see how this can quickly add up where you can really fund your early stage of R&D without even going to any ventures or or what would typically would happen before all this would you'd be going to your friends and family we call we call this a friends and family round right you go out to your network your inner circle network and say hey i'm, I'm going to start this business would you believe in me enough to put five thousand uncle joe would you put ten thousand right you would just go through your network that has been replaced by these sbr the non-dilutive funding and it's great because like i mentioned there's just there's a lot of money out there and then on the university side, that's called an STTR. So you could find a university partner if you're a student, and there's some IP agreements in there. It gets kind of complicated, but the end result is still the same. You get some money to fund your your R and D work without diluting your ownership, without going to friends and family, without all the sort of like the typical things we've had to do to sort of be scrappy and and fund these early stage ideas. Yeah, those are such great resources that I don't think many people do know about. And being able to think about, yeah, if there's grants that you can apply that help fund that R&D process, because so much of that, I think we do bootstrap and try and prove on our own. But if there's that alignment there, that can be really helpful for just getting to that next stage and kind of proving proving the concept without kind of draining all the resources you have before you've even really gotten started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you did mention like the friends and family round as well, which I think is something a lot of people think that's the place to start. And you said it's kind of becoming replaced by these grants. And I'm kind of curious if you were to then say, maybe have this grant, you prove your concept, and then you're like, it's time to take on venture capital. So are they going to be looking for how you've handled friends and family money in the past? Or does that not play into a factor of I don't think it plays in. I think VCs, especially if it's the first institutional money you're seeking, they're looking at how resourceful have you been. And if you've been able to find a million dollars in non-dilutive grant money to fund, boy, that that speaks volume to your resourcefulness, right? Because as you mentioned, not many people really know about these things. So I think it doesn't really matter from a VC standpoint these days about how they get these early parts of the company funded. And, and I think it kind of, it, it sort of transitions into this discussion around when it's the right time to get venture funding for a business. And I, I think when I'm sitting down with founders, a lot of times, I would say nine times out of 10, I'm talking them out of venture funding because either they're not ready, it's not a business right for venture scale, or they're not the right team, or there's just all these other variables where uh, a company could not be the right fit for venture. There's very specific things within a business where um, you, you're ready for venture. And that is, I'm keeping up with, I can't keep up with all the inbound requests. I need an infusion of cash so we can ride this rocket ship, right? That's typically when you as a founder should be seeking out venture. It's not, you shouldn't be going to a VC and saying, hey, you know, I have this great idea. And I think I found two or three people that might be interested in buying this thing, but I need a million dollars to vet that out. A VC will never do that. Maybe that happened 10, 15 years ago and mainly in the San Francisco Bay Area, but it doesn't happen anymore. That VCs are not funding very many ideas, especially for first time founders or those other three demographics I mentioned before. It's just not happening. And so 
um, the onus is really on the founder to put themselves in a position to be really, really well uh, um, attractive for venture infusion of cash because they just need help getting this rocket ship going and, and an infusion of cash will help do that. Yeah, I think that's such an important call out because I think that is the biggest question that's on a lot of founders' mind is like, am I ready? And how do I know if I'm ready? And I think you really encapsulated that very well. We definitely, you know, if you've got a couple, handful of customers, it's proving that model further. And like you said, it's got to be ready to take off with that infusion of capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for founders who maybe are in that stage of, I have a handful of customers, it's growing to two handfuls of customers, but aren't quite ready for that VC money, would you still recommend like going after grants or friends and family? What kind of advice do you have there? You know, I, I get this, I get asked this all the time. If I were ever to do another business, would I go seek VC or bootstrap my business and bootstrapping being just taking the money I get into my business and putting it back in and just sort of growing at a steady clip. And my answer is always the same is I would probably bootstrap as long as I possibly could without going to any funding sources because, well, I mean, non-dilutive funding, sure, I'd take that all day, but um, as long as it's not a loan that I have to pay back. But the thing, once you take money from a VC, the clock starts ticking and they're waiting to figure out when they're going to get their money back and then some, right? So once you take venture funding, it, there's a lot of pressure on founders to to figure out what the exit strategy is going to be. Whereas if you just bootstrapped and you funded the business on your own and you took the profits and put them back into the company, sure, you're going to grow at a slower pace, but two things are going to happen. One, you're not going to be beholden on somebody who has substantial influence on where you should be taking things. And the other is you're going to have a tremendous amount of ownership. And I think these days we see a lot of things, um, especially, I don't know if you see it. I certainly see it on LinkedIn when a founder gets funding and everybody goes, congratulations, and they celebrate it like it's a huge thing, which granted it is. It's a huge accomplish, accomplishment. However, comma, like it's also, it, it, there's also a big burden on the founders. And, um, and it could be, it could lead to one of two directions. Either the company fails in a, in a most spectacular way, and we've seen that recently. Uh, we've seen, and I'll pick on WeWork for a minute, even though I was there. They put $17 billion in that business of which they may never get back again, right? And and that company um, didn't grow the way it should have grown. So I think there's there's pros and cons to both, but I think bootstrapping at the end of the day, you're allowed to really grow. You keep your destiny in your hands. Um, you control it. And then when you do decide whatever it is that you want to do, whether that's exit, sell it, get acquired, go IPO, you have more ownership of it and, and you're controlling things easier that way. Right. Yeah. And I think that's part of that process too, when you're vetting VCs. And I think that sometimes uh, founders sometimes forget that because they're in this state of, I need capital or thinking that's going to, you know, help move them to the next level, but then really thinking about, okay, what are the expectations that come along with that? And I think having that conversation earlier I mean, I think all VC money, there's got to be one of those options. Like you said, you're either selling, getting acquired, going IPO, but they are going to want their money back with a, you know, that interest on top. So 
really thinking about, you know, what are their expectations before you sign on that line is really important because there's definitely been cases I've seen where people take on investors and then they're expected to be selling that company in, you know, two years time, which maybe wasn't what the founder intended. Yeah. And the flip side to that is that getting somebody to come in and, and put money into your business means that they believe in you. And if you find the right investor, they can unlock so much for you, so many resources. So again, there's pros and cons to both. And I tell founders, there's a difference between smart money and dumb money. And in the early stages of your company, you want to be going after smart money. In other words, you want to find somebody that can not only write you a check, but introduce you to a network you don't have, connect you with a customer, move the needle, find other investors, do something other than just monetarily contribute to the business. So very important in the early stages of the business. Yeah, I think that brings up a great point too, is thinking about you know how engaged and involved can investors be in the business? Yeah, right. That's the other part, right? If you get an investor who decides that they're going to get really involved, it could scuttle a lot of the things that you wanted to do as your business. So understanding and setting the right expectation from the get-go about, hey, this is what we expect out of you. We expect you to be an advisor, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm the CEO, I'm going to make decisions that you may not agree with, but that's why I'm the CEO of the business. I'm going to be able to look at the holistic picture of the business. And an investor, especially angel investors in particular, have very, very strong opinions and will often be uh, either noise or a distraction. But if it's the right one, they're great and they're involved and they're mentors and they're somebody to have be, even be a shoulder to cry when things aren't going well, because being a CEO of a startup is a, a really lonely position to be in. So so having somebody that, that can be an outlet for things when they don't go well uh, is a great ally to have. Yeah, absolutely. And you just mentioned angel investors too. Would you provide just a distinction between an angel investor and a VC, even though it's sort of what sure. I'm saying, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, it work differently. Yeah, they definitely do. An angel investor is typically in the early stages of your business, you're going after high net worth individuals. And they could be former operators, they can be, you know, just high net worth individuals that, you know, can afford to take a bet on a on an early company. Whereas a VC is more, it's an organization, there's a team behind it, they might have a due diligence team. So there's a difference. One, one is an individual, the other is an entity. Yeah. And with angel investors too, they need to be accredited though. So it can't be just anyone that has money, which I think is also a good call out to make. Yeah. And the nice thing is that SEC has really lowered uh, the rules on that a bit. So now the accreditation rules mean that instead of 3 million in net worth, you have a million, doesn't include your home, but I mean, it, it lowers the bar. So now it's opened up a whole lot of new opportunities for people to get into uh, investing in startups. Yeah, which is so exciting. I think it just helps with so much more potential on both sides of that. So yeah, so I guess if we are a founder starting to think about all these different options for investment, what do you think, I guess, what's the most important that a founder needs to be assessing within their company to decide how much they're going to be fundraising? Yeah, I mean, the first, the first thing that a founder needs to do is go through their uh, financial model. 
And and if you haven't done your financial model, that's I, I in my mind that is more important than your pitch deck. So if you've gone through the sort of thing to build your financial model from scratch, which is highly recommended, don't ever find a template and try to you'll it's more work than it is. Trust me. Go in, build your financial model. You'll understand how much you need to get you to the next plateau or the next milestone that you need to meet. So in other words, when I meet with a founder, what I want to see is if I have an infusion of cash of this amount, say, let's say 500,000, then I want to know where that's going to take you from a revenue standpoint. So I see pitch decks all the time. At the end, they go, we're looking for $1 million. We're going to use it to hire engineers. We're going to hire marketing people. We're going to do a lot more customer outreach. Well, no kidding. Those are implied costs. I know that. I want to know where that million is going to take you from a revenue perspective. If you in, if you know that because you've done your financial model, then put that in your deck. Don't put these implied costs. I know what you're going to spend the money on. I'd rather know how quickly it's going to add fuel to your rocket ship. And so I think it's a really important distinction for founders to understand because, again, I, I see pitch decks over and over again that just... They talk about the spending of the money, and that's fine. That's what the money's for. It's to spend, but it's also to get you to a milestone so that you can be ready for that next infusion of cash. Because again, once you take venture money, like the clock's ticking. So for, for VCs, once you take, say, your seed round, they're wondering when you're going to raise for your A round. When are you going to raise for your B round? And so it's almost a chess game. You have to set your company up, not for the next move, but the moves that you're going to do three, four times ahead. So really important to understand the numbers, really important to go through your financial model to really understand how much money you need versus how much money you want. Right. Yes. I think that's such a huge distinction to make because we all want a million dollars. That'll help grow a company a lot, but <laughs> yeah. you can't prove that that's actually going to you know, feed the bottom line and also then return more than that, then yeah, it's yeah. going to be closed doors for sure. Yeah. I had a founder that sent me his uh, financial model. And then like year two, he was making 4.2 million in that year. And I said, what do you need my money for? You don't like, and then I, of course I went and spent a little bit more time on the financial model. There were no formulas in there at all. And so he was just putting in things that, you know, these numbers in each of the cells. And so there's a reason these financial models work because in the first tab is all your assumptions, your attrition, your LTV, your CAC, all of these things you've put in, you've been very thoughtful about it so that if you were to change your assumption, say your LTV goes from one value to another, you look at the other tabs and it's modifying everything. Or if you hire somebody at certain salary amount, you see what it does in real time. And so it's, it's great because it's like an engine that you can, you can hit the knobs and turn the buttons and figure out how each of these different assumptions that you have about your business will ultimately impact your bottom line. So you can better plan out your quarterly financials. Financial models, I cannot emphasize it enough. So important. I won't talk to a founder until they've done a proper financial model. Yeah. Do you have any resources or examples of those where people might be able to go look them up? Yeah, there's a great VC that was my managing director when I was at Techstars. His name's Troy Hennikoff. He's at Math Venture Partners out of Chicago now. He does these like um, investor 101 posts all the time. And he was the one that taught us about financial models. So if you just search, you know, Math Ventures, Troy Hennikoff, um, financial modeling, you should find some 
thing out there, but there are a lot of resources out there and a lot of um, sheets out there that you can download that are, you just blank out all the values and, and build your own. But um, lot, lots of resources out there. Troy Hanikoff though is one of the best. Cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think I've played around financial models in the past and it's once you master it and kind of understand the different moving parts to it, it's so fun because you can build all these different scenarios you can also, you know, incorporate a lot of, you know, if you are doing a safe note or equity and like look at in the future, what that's going to look like with each fund of rounding and how much of the company are you still going to own as you bring on other investors, which is, I think, such an important piece to keep your eye on yeah. as a moving yeah. part with the business. Yep. So I know we talked about like seed funding and you did mention like series A, B and C. And so I'd love to maybe kind of talk about the role each of those hold. And how far do companies usually go with those? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I was with a company that had raised an E round. So I think it really, once you get up there, you're talking about private equity or, you know, your exit's going to be an IPO. So companies typically take a few routes to get to where they grow. And one is that, you know, the more typical route is, companies just die. 80% of companies, new companies die within five years. It's just a historical statistical fact. And, but if they don't, then they sell and, or they get acquired, which is another great, uh, great outcome for both the founders and, and the investors. And that, that will typically happen when the valuation is low enough that makes it appealing for a larger company to absorb them. So, you know, if it's a or B round, that's typically when that's going to happen. You get in the C, D, E rounds and into the IPOs where you're talking about companies that are in the billions in their valuations makes it a little harder for them to get acquired. However, they'll start gobbling up other companies. And we saw that with Twilio. I joined when we had just closed our B round and now they're, you know, a publicly traded company gobbling up other companies. They just did um, SendGrid not too long ago um, and Segment. And there's a lot of companies that they've acquired to, to build the, this incredible company now. So, you know, and there, there's private equity companies will come in and uh, private equity will come in and sort of strip away the fat from a company to make it appealing to get acquired from another bigger company. So that's also a, an outcome that occurs as well. So lots of different ways a company can exit. Yeah. It's very exciting to think about those different possibilities. And I think, again, keeping that in mind as you're building these financial models and I think the other piece that we kind of touched on earlier that goes hand in hand with that financial model is also the pitch, mm. uh, which is personally my favorite part of this process. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the storytelling and it comes back to this idea of you have to really understand who you are as a company, both now and in the future. And then you also really have to know your audience and you have to really know your customers. And so those are the three things that I'm always focused on in marketing um, and in storytelling, and I find it fascinating. So the pitch for me is something that I find to be so fun uh -huh. because I've seen a lot of terrible pitches and I've seen some uh -huh. good pitches, as I'm sure you have as well. You've seen more. But let's kind of talk about the role of the pitch and what what it serves and then also what we what's required in that pitch. Sure. I mean, there's two sort of audiences for a pitch, especially for an early stage company. There's the pitch you give to an investor and there's a pitch you give to a customer or a partner right and so you could have different types of pitch decks but to your point the thing that's really important is the story you tell uh, out of that pitch 
So focusing in on what do you want to occur? How do you want the audience to react to your pitch deck? Start there and then begin to craft a story around how you're going to get there. You're trying to play on their emotion of, I need to either work with this company or I need to fund this company because this thing is amazing. And I want to, as a founder, I want to create the FOMO, the fear of missing out within you to come and work with, with my company. So whether it's an investor deck or a sales deck, you really got to craft that story around whatever that outcome is that you want to achieve. And then from there, what you want to do is just start with a blank slate. Don't put pretty displays or graphics or pictures or anything. Start with the blank slide deck and then start to craft your story from there because you can make your deck really pretty, but if the story's garbage, it's not going to make sense. So it doesn't matter how beautiful your deck is. If the story doesn't make sense, then you've made all that effort for nothing. So focus in on the story. You can always get somebody to go out. I, we used, um, when we went through Techstars, we had several different iterations. I think we got to version 34 by the end of our 30-day get ready to pitch. Um, but we went to Fiverr and we said, here's our story. And then somebody on Fiverr did the iter did the um, uh, the first pass of it. And then we went and cleaned it up a little bit. But um, and, and also in the pitch deck, make sure there's a call to action. In other words, what do you want them to do? You just told them this incredible story, like what's next? And have that very clear, understandable, actionable ask within your pitch deck. That's, I think, from my standpoint, what makes a pitch deck so great is the story it tells, grabs your attention, plays on the emotion, and is very clear on what the, uh, the intended outcome is. Yeah, I think what you were saying about the call to action is really, really important. And I think a lot of people, especially if they're pitching to investors, will sometimes ask, like, who's going to give me money? And that is also not the right ask at the end of an investor. Like, logically, it kind of makes sense. But oftentimes, the goal is actually just to get the conversation with the investor in the room. And so, yes, you want to speak to how much you're seeking for investment and what an investor might get in return, but it's not that the pitch is just going to lead to someone handing you a check. It yeah. really leads to a conversation. And I think that's something that is often a misconception because you put all the details out there. And so now everyone wants to invest, right? Right. Right. And that's, you know, it's a great point you bring up, right? Like if, for, especially if we're just carving out investor decks, your objective is to get another meeting and then to, you want to get to a yes or a no as quickly as possible. So it's okay after that first meeting to say, what do you think? What are the next steps in your mind? Um, you know, talk a little bit about your investment process. But really, as a founder, I don't care if they tell me no. I just want it done quickly so I can move on to the next thing, right? And so as a founder, if you're meeting with investors, be very clear about your ask, but also be very clear about trying to get to closure, whether it's yes or no. Try to get there as fast as you possibly can because if it's yes and you move quickly, Awesome. Even better. Adds fuel to your jet. If you go no, great. Thank you for your time. If you know of anybody that'd be interested, we'd love to talk to them. Move on. Both are great outcomes because you have closure. You know where to go next. The worst is either you're not being very clear in your ask. And as a result, these investors just sort of string you along and string you along. Oh yeah, let's talk in a couple weeks. They, they are in no hurry 
to say yes or no to you if you are not creating the FOMO. So if you're going out and you're getting, you're closing, you know, you, if it's a hundred or it's a $1 million round and you've already closed 500,000, you're just trying to close out the last half of the, the round. It's easier for you to create that FOMO with that investor and say, look, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate, we really want to have you as a partner. I'm going to these other folks. We're going to close this pretty quickly. I'd love to get an answer quickly so that we can move forward with you. If not, no harm, no foul, but I need to keep this going. And it, it shows a sense of urgency on your side um, without being pushy, right? The worst you can do is come off as desperate, right? And I've seen a lot of founders go, well, I have six months of money left. Well, venture is not going to bail you out. That's not what they're there for. So be concise, try to get to a closure very quickly so that you can move on to whatever the next step is. But that story within your deck is, is super key. Yeah, that's really great advice. And thinking now too, like we've talked about the financial model, putting the pitch together. And so we're very clear on what we need, what it's going to be used for, how we're going to present that information. And so how does an entrepreneur then get in front of investors? I think there's a little bit of like mystery that surrounds this world and who has access to investors, especially at that venture capital level. Yeah, these days it doesn't seem to be hard to get in front of investors. Investors, they'll take virtually any meeting because there's just this internal thing within venture that they don't want to miss out on anything. So they'll take 30 minutes out of their day to talk to whomever they're going to talk to. And after that first 30 minutes, the onus is on you to create that excitement to get another meeting. So whether it's using a, your network to get a warm introduction or standing out and doing enough so that they will respond to your cold outreach, it doesn't seem to be very difficult to get to the found or to get to the investors that you want to get to. I will say that means the onus is on you to do the homework. If you're building a SaaS company, but then you reach out to an investment firm that only deals with, you know, IOT or consumer product goods, they're going to sniff that out really quickly and you're not going to get a response. So do your homework. The best ones I've seen have been, Hey, my name is so-and-so. I saw that you invested in a company ancillary to our industry. I think we'd be, we would make a really good compliment to your current portfolio. The more you can, personalize things to that investor, the more chances you're going to get a response. The other thing I will say is most VCs and will, they have a little bit of an ego. And if you can play to that ego, the better chance you're going to get a response from them. Yeah. I think that's really important. It kind of goes back to that, know your audience. So making sure that you're connecting with the investors who are knowledgeable, but also already investing in that industry is so important. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of pitch competitions out there too. Do you have thoughts on taking that route versus, yeah. you know, reaching out to investors one-on-one? -on -one? My, my take on pitching is do it as often and as much as you possibly can. And the reason why is even if it's a pitch competition and you don't think you have any chance to win, it doesn't matter. Your name is out there and you may find someone in the audience that can connect you in some way. But if nothing else, it's a it's a great way to get your name out there. And on top of that, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. So every opportunity you can find to pitch, do it. Get out there. Because 
you'll get more comfortable. You'll get more efficient telling your story. When we were at Techstars, Techstars typically, I don't know if they do this still. I haven't been at Techstars for a while, but the last 30 days, you're just focused on your pitch for demo day. That's it. You don't focus on anything else. For us in Chicago, our managing director uh, booked 10 hotel suites the day we were supposed to pitch in front of hundreds of people at the House of Blues in Chicago. And so I was already filled with anxiety about getting up in front of the House of Blues, pitching my company for eight minutes, which is a long time. It could be an, a, an eternity. But when we did that in the morning where we pitched to 10 groups back to back to back to back, by the time I got on stage, it was muscle memory. I knew my pitch inside and out, and I wasn't nervous at all. So I think any opportunity you can get to get in front of somebody, even if it's like you know you're sitting in front of an associate at a firm that you're probably not going to get any money from, it doesn't really matter. It's an opportunity for you to, to practice, to practice your pitch, to practice your story, to get really, really good at it. Yeah. And I think it allows you too to focus on the storytelling part and your own personality infusing that versus being like, oh, did I hit this point? Did they understand this point? Like you can just kind of settle in, be yourself and just kind of let it be there. And whoever gravitates towards it will and who doesn't won't. Yeah, no, it's it's that's a great point, right? You're able to get feedback about what's resonating with people. And then you can tweak your story as you go along. I, I remember the first iteration of Brightwork was not the, what the product ended up being. And before we had any customers, before we had any revenue, I pitched to DFJ, which is a Draper fund, uh, uh, Tim Draper fund, huge, huge there. They got billions under management. And I pitched to a partner and I remember it was awful. We were in Venice for some conference and I did it from the Airbnb and it was clunky. It was horrible. And that venture partner and I, we still talk because we, you know, we've developed a friendship over time and, uh, and it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing pitching to him because I should have never, ever, ever reached out to him. And he should have never, ever, ever taken my call. Uh, but it's nice. It's We can joke about it now. But boy, it, it's really hard when you don't have everything dialed in the right way. Right. But also such a huge opportunity for growth <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that's great to get that feedback, too. So I kind of want to talk about like the ethical side of the investing world because it doesn't have the strongest reputation. And there's been a lot of stories over the last, you know, five, 10 years, specifically around women fundraising and maybe some of the less ethical asks that come around that if it be a pitch me in my hotel suite or yeah. um, there's kind of this reputation of it being a bad boys club. So I'm curious from your perspective like, how do you kind of go about vetting out, again, the right partner on all levels around, yes, you know, they have the right knowledge and network, but then maybe, you know, their ethics are a little questionable too. Yeah, I would say VCs talk to each other and so founders should as well. And so if you go on their website and you find a company that they've invested in, reach out to those founders and get information about, are they a great partner? Are you happy with them on their cap table? Uh, as much as they'll share most founders will share. Techstars, thankfully, has this really good backend message board where you can read other founders and it's like a Yelp for investors. I really wish there was a more public-facing one that any founder could sort of just Yelp their investors. 
uh, anonymously. Uh, but until that time, you're going to have to reach out to other founders and just get information and do your homework. At the end of the day, it's hard. It's, it's, it's harder than, a, than hiring somebody for your company because you can fire anybody from your company if they're not working out. But it is really hard to get an investor off your cap table once they're on there. And an early investor can be a burden, a big burden. I have literally uh, watched as an investor did a capital call on a founder that led to that company going bankrupt over an argument, over something very, very petty. And that investor was able to bankrupt an entire company. And this kind of goes back to my early conversation about does it make sense to take money, right? And because I've seen all these things, as a founder, somebody has started companies, I, I don't want to take VC money because of those things. It's just, it, it leaves you very vulnerable. So finding the right partner is really important. And if you're going to take VC money, be very, very careful and just try to turn over every rock. If you got to hire somebody to go out there and do some homework, do a background check, do it because it's going to save you so much headache, so much heartache. Uh, just doing the homework in advance. I will say 99% of the VCs out there are good actors. They're out there trying to do what they can to be good to the ecosystem, be good stewards, help founders at an early stage. Um, but there are, there are some act, those, those VCs out there that they'll put on a good face to say that they're there to help out. But in the end, they're, they're not looking out for anybody other than their LPs, which is their job, if we're being honest. Um, and and they're just not there for the right reasons. And usually what ends up happening is enough founders talk, it impacts that, that, that VC's ability to get new deal flow. And, you know, hopefully it means that they either have to figure out how to adjust um, and maybe go into a new community uh, but hopefully at some point we get enough of people that um, that can stand up and say, these are the people that you shouldn't work with. And it's unfortunate. It's hard to do because of the legal ramifications. Um, but I, there's, there's got to be a better way to call out bad actors. And, and, um, and I haven't figured that out yet. But if anybody wants to come talk to me about who bad actors are, I'm happy to have a private conversation with them because I have no problem. I'm an idiot and I don't shut my mouth. I have no filter. Um, I just, I know that what I want to do is to make my community better. And the only way I can do that is to make sure everybody has a seat at the table and not everybody thinks like that. Fundraising as a VC is harder than fundraising as a founder. And what I found over the two years that I've been doing this as you can sit across from the person that is just exudes community and talks about how they're so community oriented and they don't see uh, diversity as being a big issue in VC. Um, and, and it's because they're not very deliberate about it. So yeah, I, it's, it's frustrating, uh, Charlotte, it really is. And I don't know how to fix it. I just try to do my part, but, it's just founders just need to do their homework and it's just, there's no better answer than that though. 
Yeah, no, I think that's such an important part is to do the homework piece of it. But I love this idea of a Yelp for investors. I think someone should start that for sure. (laughs) Yes. And no, I always appreciated your dedication to community and being very straightforward. I know I've come to you for advice before, and it's been so valuable. And you know, speaking of like diversity, you know, in 2020, there was, I think, 2.3% of VC capital went to women-owned businesses, Mm -hmm. which is a stat that has not moved much in the last 10 years. And for BIPOC, you know, representation is even a smaller percentage than that. And so I guess like people like you are working to help change and shift that, but how do we create a better model for distributing funds to minorities. Well, I mean, it it starts with VCs that are being deliberate. I I spoke to a a person that was hoping to be an investor in in our fund and, uh, and they went, well, I don't see color when I look at a pitch deck. Well, and then my answer to that was, well, that's part of the problem. If you're not deliberate, if you're not going to the communities, if you're not giving them a pathway to access yourself as a person that can unlock a potential for funding, then you're not changing anything. And I think it's easy to fall in this rhythm of, I want to have deal flow. I want to have good returns for my investors, but there's a way to do both and have it be very deliberate where you're bringing people of color, you're bringing women, you're bringing military veterans to the table, but you have to be deliberate about it. You can't just say, give me all your pitch decks and, oh, I'm going to close my eyes because I don't want to see color. Uh, that's not how we be, we build a diverse portfolio of companies in venture. You have to go into the communities that are, that don't have access to these venture communities. So I, I don't, I can only control what I can control. And I'll tell you that VCs, um, most VCs that I've talked to are trying, they just don't know how to do it. And um, I don't know how much effort they're putting in because I'm just not part of their fund. But I know at least it's something that when I talk to other VCs, they're very cognizant about. And I, what I love is that there are more and more funds coming out that are focused on this Black Founders um, Matter, the Black Ma- Founders Matter Fund that's here in Portland. Um, Leslie, just uh, from the Female Founders Alliance, just rebranded. She's focused on female founders. So there are funds out there that are focused on it. And, um, and certainly 1859 is focused on it as well, but I think it's just gonna, it's gonna need more historical data for VCs to turn their attention to it. In other words, we're going to need to see more people of color, more women founders have massive exits for them to pay attention because money talks at the end of the day for venture. And, and if more and more funds give that platform out there, then you'll start to see the, the mind shift happen. And it, but it only happens with funds like Black Matter or Black Founders Matter and Leslie's Fund and 1859 that are out there and being deliberate about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it is that intention and being yeah, deliberate, but also the whole not seeing color piece of it is, you know, that's on that person to make sure that they are doing the work that matters. And I think that's also, again, goes back to this research from the founder standpoint is, you know, there are so many funds out there and they might be the smaller ones and that might be a better option for you, especially if you are woman or minority and not to be 
like trying to go after the biggest VC companies because you think that's going to be the biggest check. But to ask these questions too and ask them about, you know, who else have they funded? I think that's important to keep them accountable yeah. as well. Yeah. The only way you can affect the the VCs and change their behavior is impact the the deal flow, the money at, at the end of the day. Unfortunately, that's it. And I, I the not seeing color, that's such a cop out, right? I think it's, 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 it is. <laughs> I don't see color when I, well, I, I get that. And it doesn't mean that you're a racist person, but if you are want to tout your diversity or if you're trying to make it part of your ethos and your mission statement, then you can't say that. You have to be deliberate. So it's just, it's such a cop out. And, and it frustrated. I, I literally stood up out of that meeting and went, thank you. Have a great day. And I walked out. I, I wanted no part of having that person on in, as an LP in my fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's no, no time for that anymore. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I think this has been such an insightful conversation and I think there's so many elements, you know, to investment that you've really helped highlight today. So I'd love for you to maybe tell everyone where they can connect with you further. Yeah, I'm always on LinkedIn. Uh, you just find me on LinkedIn. I think it's just Joshua J. Carter. Um, 1859.vc is the website for the fund. Um, veteran, veteran Founder Podcast, I we do those every Friday and there's those are up on anywhere you, you listen to podcasts, but, um, and then my email is just josh at 1859.vc. Happy to talk to anybody, like I said. Um, but yeah, this has been great. And, and I'll leave with this. I think a lot of founders, we touched on it a bit, but a lot of founders are really curious about the things that they need to focus on in their early stages of business. And we touched on the financial model really being an important piece of that. But within that financial model is making sure founders really understand, um, and being obsessed with the numbers and the numbers specifically being revenue and, and cost. And if you look back on all the founders and the companies that have done well, that's been their focus is trying to really drive value and drive uh, revenue into their business. At the end of the day, cash is king. And it really does drive a lot of the con or queen, if you will. Uh, it really does drive a lot of the conversations about your options as a founder. So think about if you're growing a business and what options that you want to take, once you have revenue, your options are limitless. You can really drive the narrative around what you want to do as a founder. And I've seen this time and time again. I had a founder that was in our WeWork Labs who bootstrapped the company for a number of years. And then is, they have a number of big, big ticket customers uh, on their portfolio. And now they're getting a lot of inbound requests for investment. And I watched this person get a really high profile, cold inbound email from somebody asking to be an investor. And he said the best feeling was to respond with that email with a no, we're not taking investment. He's like, it was the best feeling ever. So mm-hmm. revenue really does drive the conversation your way. If And just be obsessed with the numbers, be obsessed with your financials, your model, your revenue. And it really will take you where you want to go with your business. Yes, I think that's such amazing advice. Thank you. And my last question for you is, how does being intentional show up in your life or work? Yeah, um, I mean, for me, it's um, whether it's the my day job at Maritime Blue or the fund, it really is focused around everything I do is focused around diversity and inclusion. I come, uh, my family's a mixed family. My wife's Filipino and, um, you know, I come from a very diverse, um, 
background. And so being intentional about how I bring all voices to the table is a passion for mine. And I love at Maritime Blue that everything we do, whether it's our workforce development stuff or our accelerator work or joint innovation projects, everybody on our team is really focused in on that. And aside from the 1859 stuff, that is really the mission-driven uh, direct investment into these diverse groups of founders. That is what I'm really proud of is just being part of a team, being part of a group and an organization that is intentionally focused and is really trying to figure out how to bring everybody at a table in an industry that is traditionally not very diverse. So when we think about maritime, I mean, nobody really thinks of it being very diverse, but we spend a lot of time on all our projects and all our programs bringing voices to the table. And I think if more folks did that, I think you would see progress beyond what people expect. And, um, and that's the only way we're going to really move forward. And the people that don't want to do it or are dragging their feet, it's because there are two reasons. One, they want to hold on to the power they or the perceived power that they have and, or they just don't like change and, but change is good. Change helps us progress. And so, um, so I, I love it. I'm always in a perpetual state of being uncomfortable. And that's the only way I know I'm moving forward. Oh, amen to all that. Loved it. <laughs> yes, we've got to kind of set that, move the change. And the people who don't want to change with it, then they can stay on their island of, <laughs> like you said, that perceived power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate you being here. Well, this is fun. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, please subscribe to be the first to know when a new episode is available. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review the podcast so that other conscious business leaders like yourself can join our community of listeners. If you'd like to connect with me further, you'll find me hanging out on LinkedIn at Charlotte Chipperfield. Come join me there or check out charlottechuberfield.com for more resources and to learn more about holistic marketing.